Regardless of uh, your faith background and the kind of uh, faith experience you had growing up, the word judgment is probably not a word that you necessarily like to hear. You might cringe at it or feel a little bit uncomfortable. And uh, with our congregation's background in the United Church of Christ, um, it's hard to know the different things that maybe were said about the idea of judgment um, from pastor to pastor or different things. Uh, but usually within the world of our Christian faith in America, there's sort of two extremes when it comes to an idea like judgment. So there's what we would call um, more the progressive or liberal perspective. Um, now that is not to say that it has anything to do with politics. This is purely theology. Um, and people who are more progressive tend to hear the word judgment and they think it's a bad word because what they say is it implies that God is full of hate He's in, full of the need for revenge, and he's angry. And out of anger, he wants to uh, judge people. And then uh, that, they'll say, well, that can't be right because we know that God loves us and made us. So he can't be willing to judge us. Or even if they accept some sort of idea of judgment, there's unease in, in around it. And then there's the other side, which is more of a conservative, but more what it is is just a traditional... Um, revivalist perspective uh, that many of you might have heard just you know this was definitely something that was popular 50 years ago or more but this was the get up and all of us are sinners who are going to be going to hell and God is going to judge us if we don't repent and that was sort of with the revivalist preachers that was the way that they prompted inside people's hearts a desire to repent by appealing to the God's need to judge us. So both of these different sides create unease because either you've grown up in a perspective where judgment is something that is bad because God doesn't want to love us, or judgment is something bad because it's been used to prompt us to respond a certain way to God. So we see how, and really, the liberal perspective is a response to that older call for judgment uh, is a reason to repent. But this is a word that just makes people uncomfortable. But it's also a word that we can escape if we're studying Revelation. And that is the case this week. Because this week we start to look at the judgments that are presented in the book of Revelation. So if you want to open up to Revelation chapter 6, we are going to be uh, looking at five chapters so we're not going to be reading all of any of those chapters so you don't have to worry we're going to be jumping around but we're going to start in chapter six as we look at this next movement in the book of revelation so as you're going there and it will be on the screen and i would advise just following along there more closely i mean if you have your bible and you want to make notes feel free but we're going to be jumping around so much it'll probably be easier to follow along up there and I will try to always reference where we're going to go next. So chapter 6-1, this is how 6-1 opens. It says, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Alright, so if you remember last week, uh, we see John in the throne room of God. And Jesus is depicted in the throne room of God in this vision as a slain Lamb. And remember, also in the throne room of God, the, the person on the throne has a scroll in their hand, and it's sealed with seven seals, which, remember, just pieces of wax 
with like a seal pushed into it to hold it closed. If the seal's broken, it means the document's been opened. And the question was put in chapter 5, who can open the seals and open the document? And no one was worthy except for Jesus, the slain lamb. So now the lamb begins to open the seals. So as the seals are opened, what we actually encounter, and and we're not going to look at this, but this right after in in chapter 6 verse 2 is where we're introduced to characters that are so popular within the world of apocalyptic literature and end-of-the-world things. And you've heard about them, even if you don't know where, but you've all, everyone's heard about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? Have you heard about that before? All right, I, I don't see as many hands as I'm sure, I feel like people have heard this. I talked to some family, and there's about two or three different TV shows that draw on these different images, that one of them I'd never even heard of. But the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So that's where they come in. Now these are the horsemen. The first horseman rides a white horse. And he carries a bow. Now this is actually probably a reference to Rome's greatest enemy. The Parthians. So this horseman is actually a threat to Rome. And makes them scared. The second horseman is red. And he has the power to take peace from the earth. So people often say, well, this is a horseman of war. But then they're like, well, what is the first one? Because that one brings war too. It's not really that clear. The third horseman is black, or he rides a black horse, and he brings with him famine and disease. And then the fourth horseman, horseman rides a pale green horse. And we're told that he was named death, and he has the power to kill on the earth. So these are the horsemen of the apocalypse. Now there's some common ideas. There's war, there's a greater war, famine and disease and death. Now those are the first four seals. Now let's go to the next one, the fifth seal. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony that had, they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a while longer until the number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed, just as they had been. So this is the next seal. So we go through the first four seals, which talk about these ideas of judgment, war, famine, death. But then this next seal isn't about judgment at all, or at least not as we'd expect. Instead, instead it describes a scene of Jesus followers, of disciples who have been killed and they're described as the blood on the altar the blood on the, the altar of sacrifice. So that's the image that's being given here. So we have now the martyrs, that's the word that the church began to use for people who were killed because of faith, martyr. People who are killed because of their faith are now calling out to God for justice. And then we have the next seal that's opened. This is the sixth one. They call to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For that great day of the wrath has come and who can withstand it? 
So that is a reference to the rulers of the world who call out on the sixth seal because the sixth seal brings, and remember verse 17, for the great day of the wrath has come. The sixth seal brings with it the day of the Lord. So I understand that we're, we're jumping through these quickly and it can be bewildering. But now that we've looked at these first six seals, we need to look at them as a whole. So what people often do is they take these seals and they think all of them are in the future. So at some point there's going to be these horsemen that come. One of the TV shows I've watched, the horsemen, because they, they're supposed to ride horses, but it's modern times. So the horsemen show up and they're driving fancy sports cars. And each sports car has the color of the horsemen in the first in these first four verses, this first section. And then they bring with it one of those things, war, or they bring with them famine or death. So we try to find something in the future, and we say we need to look for a horseman who brings this, because that is a sign that these things are happening, and the seals are starting to be opened. And the seals have to be opened one at a time for judgment to come. But I don't think that's not the picture that we're being given. Think about it. War has existed since the beginning of time. Famine and pestilence or plagues, right? We know a little bit about a a modern-day plague right now. So some people might say, oh, that means this is a third seal. Well, what about the plague that everyone talks about that was 100 years ago? What about the, the great black plague that happened before that? And then death, every person who's ever lived will die. And then we have against these first four seals, these martyrs who are calling out for justice. Because they've lived faithfully. And remember, this book is written to people, some people who are suffering because of their faith. And they're like, is it worth it to suffer? They might be experiencing famine because they don't have any money, because they're remaining faithful. And they've been rejected by their family and they have no work. They might be facing death. And then the sixth seal is God's final judgment. So this is the day of the Lord passage. Now the book of Joel in the Old Testament is completely devoted to the day of the Lord. And it's about the day when, when justice will come and God will completely restore and bring justice on the people who have been oppressed in the world. So that is a future looking day. But what we need to see with these seals of judgment is that judgment is ongoing. Judgment is continual. And I think judgment is also just a result of rebellion. Because humans have rebelled against God, judgment is natural. War, famine, people using power over others, death. These are all results of rebellion. So judgment is ongoing and continual. It's not something that only happens at the end. And then uh, when we get to the seventh seal, which it, we don't have to go yet, Ryan, sorry, right. I don't have this part up yet. The seventh seal, it actually, when the seventh seal opens, John sees seven angels holding seven trumpets. And then what happens next, and we're not going to read the trumpet sections, is that the trumpets start to get played one at a time, just like the seals were opened. And now, instead of the seal plagues, we have, and the way that it's been described by a guy named Tim Mackey, who's a Bible scholar, 
he says that in Revelation, John takes the ten plagues from Egypt. Think about the Egyptian plagues before Moses brought Israel out of, out of Egypt. Those ten plagues are taken, he said they're put in a blender, and then they're brought out in seven trumpets in the book of Revelation. So now we have more judgments. Now if you're trying to figure out when those come, the question is, oh, well then when does this trumpet happen and that trumpet, and how does it line up with the seals? But really what we're seeing is a different perspective of the same judgments. Because what was Egypt's judgment? It was God bringing uh, judgment against a nation in rebellion against him who is oppressing his people. And Exodus is a story of God liberating his people from oppression, which is exactly what he's going to do when he returns and liberates us from the oppression of the rebellion of the world. And this is the position that the people, a lot of the people in John's audience are in. And he says, remember that God will liberate us. And then, uh, so this is the, the way the last uh, trumpet is described. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet. This is all the way now in chapter 11. So chapter 7 is when the trumpet started, and chapter 11 is when they finish. The seventh trumpet was sounded, and there was a loud voice in heavens which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. So again, the seventh trumpet is a depiction of the day of the Lord. When the world's rebellion will be finally ended, and the people of God and creation will be restored to live under the reign of Jesus fully. So these are the pictures of judgment. That the world is in rebellion. And because of the world is in rebellion, judgment is ongoing. And in some cases, judgment is actually good because it means that people have been found to be justified in their need to be saved. So judgment isn't always a bad thing. Think about if a judge renders you innocent, you've been proven innocent, that's a good thing. Because it shows that you've been tested and you are indeed innocent as you've claimed. It's not necessarily a bad thing. But it is about justice, and it is about righting the wrong in the rebellions of the world. So this is the judgment. But in the midst of all of this, in the book of Revelation, there's these other sections that are intermixed within the judgments. Now, we didn't see this when we looked at the seventh seal, because I'm skipping around. But the seventh seal actually comes after a long section in chapter, uh, in chapter 7. So let's take a look at that now. So chapter 7 begins with an interlude. It says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel come up from the east, having the seal of the living God, he called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. This is what he says to him. He says, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until you, we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I have, when I had heard this, then I heard the number of those who were sealed. 1,440. 100,440. 100, 
from all the tribes of Israel. Now, after this, they list 12,000 from every tribe. Though we're not going to read that. Now, the question that's posed at the end of chapter 6 on that first judgment on the day of the Lord from the people who are the rulers of the earth, who God is judging because of their rebellion, they run and hide in the hills because rebellion, the rebellion is ended and they're hiding from God's judgment. And they say, who can withstand God's wrath or who can withstand his judgment? That's the question asked at the end of chapter 7 or the end of chapter 6. And the answer is given right here in chapter 7. The people who can withstand God's judgment are those whom he has sealed as his people. So even though God is planning to judge the world, he has answered the problem that naturally comes next. When we ask the question, well, God, don't you love us? How can you judge us, even though we're deserving because of our rebellion? You've made us. And the answer to that is yes, and I want to be with you. And because of that, I have actually called out my people to be saved from judgment. I have invited my people, Israel, the image used throughout the Bible, first as the nation and then as Jesus' chosen called people, the people who are called to follow God and return to allegiance to him and no longer be in rebellion. So we, the people of God, we are the equalizer to God's judgment. That's so important for us to see. We are the equalizer to God's judgment. But that's not all that we do as the equalizer. There's another interlude in chapter 11 before the end of the, the trumpets. And this is this one. And this is what it says. It says, I will appoint my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands and the two before the Lord of the earth. So there's these two witnesses that are also appointed in the midst of all these judgments. Now what people usually do is think this is some future and there's the great tribulation. In the great tribulation they got to figure out when the judgment comes and then the witnesses come. And we try to figure out everything in the future. But that's not what this is about. It's about the two witnesses. I mean, I have not read this anywhere, but it could be an image, I think, of Israel and the church. Who together witness to the people of the world to return from their rebellion to follow God. But the whole point of the witnesses is they're calling out to God's people. They're calling out as God's people to the world to say, you need to return from your rebellion to God. Because he will bring judgment eventually, but you need to return. We are the equalizer to God's judgment. And in the midst of these judgment passages in Revelation, we see this balance that God, for one, has made a way to save people from ultimate judgment. And that is through returning to him and being part of his people. And also he's given those people the task of proclaiming to the world the need for them to repent and return to God so they can escape judgment. We are the equalizers to God's judgment. 
So this, remember, Revelation is a behind-the-scenes look at reality. So even though for the people in the first century, it looked as if evil was winning, even though the kingdom of Babylon, which is what we'll talk about next week, and in Revelation, these are given the titles of beast and the dragon. There's one dragon, two beasts. And they rule and terrorize the world. And Babylon is worshiping the beast and the dragon. But the call for the people of God is to realize that the judgment that they've been seeing is ongoing. And the world will have ultimate judgment on the day of the Lord. And our duty as the people of God is to remain faithful, to be an example of people who do follow God. And the way we talk about that here is living the way of Jesus. And on top of that, we are the witnesses to the world to return to living the way of Jesus. We are the equalizer to God's judgment. So in modern day world terms, think about anything evil. I mean, we have this pandemic going on right now. And I'm not going to say that this is an intentional judgment from God. This is a result of human rebellion. And the one answer to the rebellion is to follow Jesus. Because that is the solution that God has given to overcome death and rebellion. And we need to be proclaiming that. Anytime we see injustice in the world, we need to be proclaiming that God does not like injustice and he will eventually bring justice to those who have been oppressed. We are the equalizer to God's judgment. And that's the way that God designed it. He called out people and he gave them the responsibility of being his ambassador in the world to show people back to the way they were made to live. We are the equalizer to God's judgment. Next week we'll be looking at chapter 12 for sure. As you can, because we go so quick, you're not going to grab all of it unless you read beforehand. Chapter 12, 13, 14. We might even go through 15, 16. Read ahead for sure 12 and 13 and 14. Because we'll now be looking at this dynamic between the dragon and the two beasts and... Now notice, that's three, and then the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Trinity and the unholy Trinity of rebellion against God. And the judgments will continue, but for this week, we are the equalizer to God's judgment. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you as your people. We continue to read this book. Lord, may you help us to, to wrap our minds around judgment. May we grasp that judgment is the natural order of rebellion against you. That a world that you made to be whole and complete cannot return to that place without the things that are incomplete and twisted being judged and named as wrong and done away with. 
so that we can return to the harmony and the peace of your original intention for creation. Lord, may we recognize that the answer you've given to the rebellion of people is all of us who are faithful followers of your Son. May we continue to live the way of Jesus. And may we be witnesses to the world and call them out of rebellion back to following your Son and living as you've called us to live. Lord, may we see the judgment in the world for what it is. May we begin to recognize places that need to be named and redeemed for the kingdom of God. And may we be participants in justice and peace in the world. We ask this all in your Son's name, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.